Welcome to Seizure Salad, Fuster Cluck Epilepticus. A salty, slightly cynical conversation about epilepsy, neurological disorders, and occasional random tangents. Together, we explore the synaptic jolts that short-circuit one's world and the mental and emotional fallout that comes from them. And if that sounds heavy, don't worry. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And now, Seizure Salad with your host and electrostatic meat sack, Micah B. Welcome to Seizure Salad, Fuster Cluck Epilepticus. This is your host and electrostatic meat sack, Mike B. Today we're going to be meeting up and talking with Dee McKnight from Invite. You can find more information about Invite, genetic testing uh, company, at invite.com. I-N-V-I-T-A-E.com. So uh, check it out. This I am blessed to have Dee with us today. Um, I I like a lot of other people with epilepsy. Got was told I had a genetic type of epilepsy and and i was really confused about this i took it to be like an inherited thing from either one side or another of my family and then d uh visited us and, and gave us a presentation at our um epilepsy support group meeting and it really opened my eyes it really um gave me a lot more understanding of how this actually works and there's a couple of ways about it uh d welcome how are you today I'm good. How are you? Say, I'm say, doing say, well. Yeah. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us. It's great to see you again. How are you doing? What's going on? Where are you at right now? I am currently in Maryland and uh -huh. um, there was sun today briefly, but I see clouds are coming back in. Um, so I uh, work from home in my basement um, at uh, in VT. It's almost a fully remote workforce. Okay. Um, so the people that are on site are, are the people who are working in the lab and physically moving samples around for the most part. And then everybody else is, is in their own homes. And this was pre COVID too. So when COVID came, we were already set up for that. You were in your element. It, it just flowed right through. Zoom was not new for us <laughs> when COVID hit. Nice. Nice. Um, so Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got involved with um, precision medicine and, and genetics. Sure. So my road to genetics was not straightforward. I, um, I got a bachelor's degree in biology from University of Maryland. And then I worked as a junior chemist in a, a generic pharmaceutical company for, I didn't even last a year. And I was like, okay, I think I got to go get more schooling here. And so then I went and got my PhD at Penn State, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, my PhD was in physiology, and it was a bone biology lab. And I think for a long time, I just kept trying different things and would realize I didn't really like it and then switch gears and didn't really like that and kept doing that until I was in my postdoc at NIH, and I basically stumbled upon medical genetics. I was in a, a protein biology lab and um, the PI was studying a family of bone proteins, or, or to, uh, tooth proteins, actually, sorry. And um, I happened to be able to figure out how to sequence one of them. And we had a collaborator who had a, a freezer stock of, of samples from patients with this, this dentin disorder that they could never find the, the mutation for. And they're like, oh, well, you figured out how to sequence through this gene. Can you look and see? And and sure enough, I found all the causes of, of the those families' dentin disease. And um, that was really exciting. That was my 
introduction to medical genetics. So then I was like, oh, finally, instead of finding things I don't like and bouncing around, I found something I did like. (laughs) And then I kind of dove into that and uh, did my fellowship at NIH. So I'm a board certified clinical molecular geneticist, which means I'm boarded to sign the genetic reports at a diagnostic lab. And then I went on to my, my first real job as an adult. I was already 30 by then, I guess. And um, it was at a diagnostic lab. And that's when I fell in love with epilepsy genetics. That is fantastic. Um, you you have co-authored and collaborated with uh, other team members, scientists and doctors on some really informing and, and groundbreaking uh, papers. And I'm going to include the links to these studies in uh, the description of, of today's episode. And I'll also put in the uh, website for it. Is it Invitae or Invitae? It's, it's Invitae. I may, I hope I'm saying it right, but I think it's Invitae. <laughs> I, I just saw on, on the website, you actually, they, they actually have it phonetically and I've been yeah. saying it forever. All I had to do was actually read the opening line. So that one's on me. So uh, you worked with Children's Hospital. Uh, Children's Hospital in Denver at the Institute Center is is really um, highly respected. So it started out, and I think with as you explained it, genetic panel testing is fairly common nowadays with kiddos, mm-hmm. um, but adults, they, it's not like the first step. And is there a reason for this? Yeah, I mean. Medical genetics and diagnostic genetics, especially for epilepsy, is relatively new medicine. So back when I got started in 2010, I think the first epilepsy panel that that laboratory offered was around almost 2012. So we're, we're just 10 years ago. Okay. And um, at that time, there was maybe a couple dozen genes that were known to cause an epilepsy syndrome, like a monogenetic cause, like you have one change or you have, you know, two bad copies, one from mom, one from dad, and it causes disease. And it's, it's like clear cut. Um, it's not complex. Like some people are affected, some are not like, it's very straightforward. That's all we really can understand at this point is a very obvious, straightforward stuff. And so at that time it was a couple dozen genes and Um, In the last 10 years, as the cost of um, sequencing has gone down, we were able to start testing more and more genes and ultimately exomes and genomes on people. And what we saw was as the cost of sequencing went down, the gene discovery rate went up. And now there's like thousand genes that are known to cause epilepsy, genetic epilepsy. And... um, So there was really this pretty big boom. The first, I would say, clinicians to embrace genetics for for epilepsy were were mainly your geneticists and pediatric neurologists. Okay. And um, so I think that as the genetics started to to be better understood, the kids really benefited from it, Um, especially kids with early onset seizures, um, first year, first two years of life. These can be your very, very devastating um, disorders, much very severe um, for the for the child and the family, and um, and also like very life threatening and um, a lot of comorbidities. Um, 
children maybe not developing, meeting milestones, um, maybe not able to have language, um, maybe not even able to walk. Um, so those were the, the kids that were getting the te- tested first. Okay. So now adults, many of which may have been born, you know, with some similar features, had they been born right now, they would have gotten testing right away. But they were born, you know, one, two, three, four decades before we knew anything about genetics and epilepsy. So now you're not seeing a pediatric neurologist anymore who's comfortable with ordering genetics because they've been doing it for 10 years. You're seeing a neurologist yeah. who it's a little bit different. Um, and, and there's still a lot of work to do to get neurologists as comfortable with genetics as a pediatric neurologist or a geneticist is. Okay. Okay. And this, this, this was one of the big eye openers I had because, um, my confusion around it was, well, then it's genetic. My younger brother and I had it. Um, you know, we, we had the smaller focal seizures growing up. Um, but our older brother didn't. And so it was like, well, then this has to be coming from our father, but in actuality, it's very possible that um, my biological father and my mother um, both had the the mutation, right? And and since my older brother is my half brother, that didn't affect him. That's it's Im- possible. Okay. So it's it's possible. It could be that it's dominant coming from a single parent. Um, not not everybody, especially for some some of the dominant later onset conditions. Not everyone's going to express it the same way. There could be recessive, which you're describing, one bad copy from mom, one bad copy from dad. That That is definitely a possibility. Another one is X-linked. And this is where it could be that it's coming from mom, but because she has a healthy copy, she's fine. And when she passes it down to two sons, you don't have a healthy copy anymore. Okay. So you only you inherited the bad copy from mom instead of the good copy from mom. So it's there's there's lots of different inheritance. And then there's this is again, this is we really only understand the really obvious stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's there's likely to be a whole more complex cause of epilepsy that isn't because of one change like one bad gene, but it could be that there's multiple changes throughout the genome and let's say 10 of them cause epilepsy but if you only had nine it's not enough or if you had eight it's not enough if you have nine it is when you're stressed and then if you have 10 it's more severe so we don't understand that yet that's complex genetics there's very likely complex genetics involved in Mm -hmm. some individuals epilepsy and we haven't figured that out yet Okay. Uh, and this is a great reason, I think, uh, not only for patients, but for the knowledge pool in the community overall, is to push for that. Um, I have a question for you, and a lot of these answers are going to be available for people on the Invitae in site. I'm a big, big fan of advocating for yourself and questioning the treatment plan that you're getting in a healthy way, you know, a healthy, um, productive way. So do you need a doctor's approval to come in and get a, a, a panel done, a genetic panel done? Yeah, right now, um, 
the testing for epilepsy is something that needs to be ordered by a, a, a medical professional. Um, okay. It could be a clinician. It, it could be a doctor. It could be a genetic counselor. Um, but um, a medical provider has to order it. Okay. I do hear this often from adults with epilepsy who are frustrated because they're talking to their neurologist. They're showing them information that they're getting from conferences or from their their support advocacy groups or, you know, and the neurologists are just resistant. And often what what you have to do if you really, really, really want to pursue this, you might have to go to a larger academic center. Um, So the larger academic centers tend to have more resources. So their clinicians are just a little bit more comfortable with genetics. They might have genetic counseling. They might have geneticists that they can talk to in the same facility versus a community neurologist just may not have those resources to lean on. And there can be discomfort that they might get a result back that they don't understand. Okay. Um, or they get a result back and they don't know what to do with it. And they actually are supposed to do something with it, but they're not sure. And they don't have that kind of support. So um, often if you're involved with a bigger academic center, if you visited a bigger academic center, you have the ability to get to a bigger academic center, you're likely to, to be met with less resistance around getting the genetic testing then. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that you speak to a larger point in there in that, um, epilepsy itself and seizure conditions and are they're still learning so much so fast things change so quickly right now in in the world of of treating this and, and understanding it that in just about everything not just the genetic testing but you know what they call the seizures um you know different techniques and in tips and tricks when i was in glenwood the neurology department had no idea what to do with me and sent me to uc health in denver and here we've got this i've got a huge team and they're able to kind of bounce off of each other and and learn from each other and, and i get better treatment that way mm-hmm. so i that makes so much sense sometimes you got to break up with your dog and go <laughs> yeah. somewhere else you have to see other people yeah. and get a second opinion, you know. <laughs> um, I think like another thing that you you sort of made a point that I that resonated with me. I think that if you're comfortable, if you're an adult with epilepsy and you're comfortable and you have the ability, joining research studies, being part of the research is what's gonna help the field move forward, whether it's clinical trials or even if it's a research looking at, you know, the complex genetics, we still have to figure that out. There's a lot of people that we test, do genetic testing on, they have epilepsy and we're not finding the cause. And they go on and they do the best possible genetic testing. They look at the whole exome or the whole genome and we still don't find the cause, but there's something there. It's just that we haven't figured it out. And so joining research studies is is really going to help move the field forward. And it's genetics is a little bit different now than when I started in it a decade ago. It was like, okay, you do a genetic testing and you find your answer. And really maybe then it gives the parents an opportunity to make reproductive decisions and find out what their risks are of having more kids with, with that condition or but that was really it. It just kind of answered a question like, why is this happening? Now, you know, that's not the situation anymore. 
we are living in the last like few years, an age of where we're about to see precision medicine explode. Genetic conditions, some by all means have what look like a cure at this point between gene therapy and CRISPR. And there's these things called ASOs. These are things, these are drugs that are targeting the genetics. They're targeting the bad gene and either turning it off or making a good copy of the gene you're missing, like really going to the source of the problem. And this is why we need to do more research and more genomics and proteomics and all the kinds of omics, because this is, this is what, this is what matters. Yeah. Yeah. You find your reason, you find your answer, but then what the, then what is finding that precision therapy Mm -hmm. and helping people live their best longest life ever. Yeah. And you're only, you're only going to find answers to what you're asking and, so, so sometimes it's like, oh gosh, this didn't work. Well, maybe you were looking in the wrong place. And That's I, right. yeah, and I love how you saved this, this um, explosion in, in discovery and knowledge. What did you say? Uh, it started out with maybe 12 genomes that you guys found. And now you're up to what? 189, I think. Of um, genes? Of genes that, that you have um identified as being being possibly oh it's gone from dozens to like thousands i mean really and and we still i think are just at the beginning of that knowledge because we only understand the really obvious stuff like the really easy to to understand stuff we haven't figured out the complex stuff and that's that's the next level okay and um and once we understand these etiologies, now these therapies can target the etiology. And that that's what's so impressive is to see some conditions that were, you know, um, I mean, there's other, these aren't epilepsy conditions, but there are other genetic conditions where, you know, it looked like a death sentence. Like if you had this, you weren't going to survive past the age of two. And now with gene therapy, these are kids walking around hitting, you know, at this point, somewhere between five and 10 years old and, and changing, completely changing the course of that genetic condition. And, um, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to see what by all means look like cures to genetic disease. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime, let alone like 10 years. (laughs) Do you, uh, and this is, this is a little bit off topic, but not, I, I'm, I'm assuming that this gives you a lot of, of, um, a lot of gratitude, a lot of satisfaction, a lot of, cause you are part of this, this pioneering breakthrough. How does that feel? I mean, it feels great when you put it that way. I'm like an impatient person though. So it's frustrating. I'm like, come on, we got to move faster. We got to get the data out there. We need to sequence more people like drug companies, make more drugs. Like I'm I'm impatient with it, but at the same respect, it's moving really fast. And it, it is nice to be part of it. I, I always think we can do more. Like, you know, you, you do see that like there's diagnostics. The field of diagnostics is is really in so many ways separate from the field of biopharma. And really they're they're just they were always different entities, but now they have to come together. Like we have to yeah. work together. We have to share data. We have to share patients. We have to, you know, share for drug discovery and, um, and, and get a patient who has a diagnosis to, to that drug company who's running a clinical trial or really helping to make those connections because these are rare diseases. Ultimately, I mean, they, 
affect a lot of people. So they're common, but ultimately these are kind of rare conditions and it can still sometimes be hard to connect those dots. Yeah. Um, but you know, we can't waste any time. So I'm always like pushing, pushing, like let's share data, let's collaborate, let's, you know, whatever we can to make those connections and move things forward fast. Right. And um, what you had mentioned about going to the educational facilities, the the larger institutions, and and volunteering and, and joining in, in some of these research um, projects, right? I, I actually signed off to, to be part of a larger pool study. Um, because just for that reason right there, um, what do you think about the possibility? And is this already in play? How can we, how else can we as patients, um, join in the management and guidance of this? Is there any kind of effort, uh, to work with and lo- quote unquote lobby, um, certain medical institutions or the insurance uh, companies and and really advocate because I think if we could get them in because uh, this benefits everybody we had a guest on um, a few months ago uh, who did pharmacogenomics and you know are you a fast metabolizer or are you slow metabol and, and it looked at the liver uh, enzymes I do believe and we've had another guy more recently who worked with um, precision medic- medicine and gene testing for CBD panels. And we all know CBDs and THC are really helpful in the epilepsy community. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is something entirely different. This this doesn't go toward, oh, what pills should I be taking? What's going to make me sick? What's not going to work at all? This is more kind of like you said, going to the source. You're treating the source rather than the symptoms with this method. Is there a big difference? Yeah. So you bring up a really good point and really one of the challenging things in our field is, is there is resistance to cover this kind of testing. Um, and a lot of, a a lot of, uh, barriers are put up, um, by a lot of payers around testing. And it's, it's not always clear why, or if it, you know, really does benefit the patient. I think that sometimes, there's still this older view that again, genetic testing is just answering a question of why, but it doesn't really change management. And even um, one of our recent manuscripts came out just, I think the end of last year, we showed that finding a genetic cause of epilepsy, you could change the medicine, just the those anti-seizure medications that have been around like decades, that there are with certain genetic conditions, drugs you want to avoid because they will make you worse or drugs you want to take because there's research showing that they're more effective in individuals with that genetic condition. And so even the, the super precision medicine aside, like this is just your standard, um, you know, anti-seizure drugs, even the genetics can inform that. And we, in that study showed that half of the positive results, the doctors changed the treatment based on that result. And then when we had enough time to measure outcomes of like, how did the patients do after the doctor changed the medicine? 75% of them had positive outcomes. 65% of them had either reduced or total seizure control. Wow. That is from changing that medicine. Yeah. Like that's a big deal. (laughs) So I mean, really insurance should be paying attention. And I think that It'll save insurance companies money. 
so much money because less seizures means less hospital stays, right? Right. Which are very costly. Not to even mention the improved quality of life. I mean, really all that goes around with having good seizure control versus poor seizure control. It's not just dollar signs. And um, so that's where I think the community, the patient community, especially the adult patient community really can, can make an impact. Call your insurance company. Why can't I get this testing? Pay for this. Um, Medicaid, parents with kids, call Medicaid. Why can't I get this testing? Pay for this testing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's going to need to happen globally for us to make sure that like the diagnostics isn't the like barrier to you getting a precision therapy. There should be no weight on the diagnostics. Like if there's a precision therapy that's available, everyone should have the diagnostics to know who qualifies for that or not. Right. Um, and so I, I do think like taught, you know, calling your insurance company and complaining and saying, I need this. And there are medical groups like um, neurology, you know, uh, colleges that release guidelines and, and things like that. And I think, you know, if you being vocal in your community, coming together, looking at, um, what what does the state cover, not cover, um, your insurance, all of these things are are gonna help move it forward. I mean, I think like a lot of times they just want to see more evidence too. So this is the kind of stuff we're doing in the diagnostic labs with all this data, trying to to provide this evidence to show the benefits, um, show the cost savings, show the improve quality of life. I mean, we have to just keep doing that until there's really no way you can say no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it gets dangerous. I am a living example of what you're talking about here. Um, I was lucky enough um, and just got sick and tired of the treatment. You know, th- doctors throw pills at you like they're throwing spaghetti against the wall until something sticks. I almost died off a couple of them. I, one gave me incredible suicidal thoughts that I, yeah, I went through 14 different medications in four years and I have a drawer that I I ended up taking back to the pharmacy, but I had a a drawer shoebox size of pills that insurance had paid for that were making me ill or making me sick or killing me. And how much money did that cost? How much money did that cost for me to have to throw them away? And think about all your time. Oh, God. All your time, all those visits, that wait and see and just throw at it and see what happens, see what sticks. Yeah. And you see that like a lot of patients with, and this is true for children and adults, they are on so many drugs and that drug to drug interaction and all the side effects. And I mean, that just even knowing when you have a a diagnosis well, this drug's not going to help me. Take them off. We saw that that was a common thing to just stop certain drugs. If you know it's not going to help based on the etiology, how that drug works and why you have epilepsy, take them off. Like those side effects are significant. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And how scary, you know, as an, an adult, you can articulate this, but there's obviously there's people with epilepsy who can't articulate that or children to be having these this very you know unnatural feel for for these drugs is is really scary. Yeah, and and we've touched upon this before in in other episodes on this show, is 
there is this inherent, especially with kiddos, you know, kiddos are looking up to adults as authority figures in the first place. And the doctor is supposed to be this all knowing, all encompassing, you know, everything is for the greater good. And they, they intend positive, you know, they have positive intent. It's just the way that the system has been set up and going for so long. And like you said earlier in our conversation, that the resistance because of the discomfort with the results and the process. Yeah, I like I like how you said, you know, tell them to take it off, put your foot down. And I know there's so many of us that are like, you're not supposed to do that, blah, blah, blah. Trust the process. But you also have to question the process. It's not a blind trust here. Well, and you know yourself better than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, you do. And you see this with the parents of the kids, like they are living and breathing this all day. They are the experts. I mean, when these kids get diagnosed, these parents become the experts in that disease. Yeah. And, um, and you know, talking with them, they often know far more about that gene and that disease and what it looks like than anyone in the world, any expert in the world. Because they're they're living and breathing it. You're the expert on you, and um, and so yeah, there is a certain degree of of learning and and hearing them out. But when you know something's just not right, like definitely feel free to you should speak up. You know best. Yeah, take ownership of what's happening to you and and what's going on. Mm-hmm. And you gave me an idea um, to your point about parents um, being the experts on on their, their kids' condition, what a, not only should adults, you know, start talking, you know, I demand, why can't I get this to their insurance companies, maybe to doctors, what have you, uh, but also what could help is the parents of the children who have gone through this, had the um, testing panels done and made adjustments and saw this great improvement. Let's Parents, let's be very vocal about this. Let's send out that positivity and say, this works. And the more people voice that to their providers, then maybe the more influence is going to come through because, hey, we all like to do a good job and a pat on the back and the shoulder when, when you've, you know, accomplished it. Let's let the adult neurologists know that your success rate's going to go through the roof by doing this. So if we could get a little peer pressure going on and and the adult neurologists start to see these pediatric neurologists enjoying this this success rate, then then we could maybe start to shift some of that stuck thinking, right? I think so. I think you're right. Like within the transition of care when a child goes, you know, from um, child care to their adult care, you know, there's usually still a caregiver educate them. Or yeah. for, for, you know, in your case, you've gone to now you're with an academic center and this amazing care when you, you know, see your old neurologist or go back and, and run into your old neurologist, like educating them. I do this all the time when I go in for my regular, um, you know, GI doctor or OBGYN. I mean, I'm always talking to them about genetics and teaching or like with my child's pediatrician, we had pharmacogenetic testing done for my daughter and I'm teaching her. I'm like explaining it to her and, and just, we, we can help add, I mean, these doctors have had a ton of training and they know a lot 
Um, but this is new. And when you become the expert, you know, definitely go and teach those around you and, and help them get a little bit more comfortable with the language, more comfortable with the results, see the positive benefits that you're experiencing. And it, it should help move things forward. It can't hurt. That's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> it can't hurt. And, you know, anyone out there listening, parents, um, patients, go to the Epilepsy Foundation, let them know of the successes and and because the foundation is always lo looking to help with ways and and connecting people to to things that are going to work so let's let's let our local foundations know let's be vocal let's create a support group that's not meeting in a dark room every day it's more shouting out from the mountaintops right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um we just got a few more minutes to go i guess i should probably upgrade my zoom someday <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm pinching my pennies right now because my son's graduating in june and I, I i have an idea of what i want i can't say it right now just in case his mom or he is listening but i i've got something special in mind for him so good uh, yeah no priorities for sure priorities. 45 minutes take it <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly thank you so much for your time here um and again i'm gonna put in the uh if it's okay with you, I'd like to put in links to these research papers, as mm -hmm. well as a link to uh, Invitae. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, you have a lot of really helpful information on that website. And um, the, Invitae actually does these genetic uh, panels, correct? Mm -hmm. But it's not the only one. There are others. And I think a lot also, and this is what you talk about, um, about s support and, you know, partnering with people. Uh, you guys have a lot of partners out there. So it's not like, hey, go to Invitae. I think personally, I, I love what you guys do. But if there's something more accessible to you uh, in your state or in your country or what have you, D's not going to get pissed off if you decide to. <laughs> no, just get tested. Just whatever get tested. works, whatever uh -huh. works, just get tested. If you can, if you, if you hit a wall with that doctor, try another doctor. Yeah. Um, if you can get to an academic center, they're they're going to give you less resistance. There's there's multiple labs that offer genetic testing for epilepsy, and they're all very good. Um, there's there's standards that we have to meet to give you um, a, a quality result. So you're you're in good shape. What I love about this is is you guys really advocating for the patient in in this partnership and in collaboration and cooperation with other companies and and um, research centers and stuff, it shows to me that you guys really put the the cure and the patient um, first and foremost. And I really appreciate that. Where are you guys going next? Like, is there anything that's just burning with excitement inside of you that, that you know, the, the next phase, the next breakthrough? Can you give us an yeah. idea? I mean, for me personally, I'm very excited. We announced a partnership with Deerfield and we're going to be starting to leverage our genetic data for drug discovery. Wow. And that is really exciting to me. That's a new field. And I'm really excited if if our data is at all able to accelerate that. I mean, that's that's great. Within epilepsy, we have a study now um, where we're looking to, to show that that when you get a diagnostic result, it actually reduces 
the procedures and the claims and all those things. And we have uh, initial data that shows that sure enough, there's a reduction in emergency room visits when you get diagnosed versus not diagnosed. Um, So hoping to, to, to again, create that data to, to make it a little bit easier to get the testing with, um, with insurance and also the data for a neurologist to, to be like, I have to, I have to start doing this. Like, it's I'm negligent if I'm not doing it at this point. Like that's where yeah. we want them to feel like I actually have to do this and it's I'm not doing a good job if I'm not doing genetics. And so enough evidence will get us there. So that that's what I'm excited about doing next. Nice. I see the I see the excitement in your face and it's just it's making me excited as this is so great. Um Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge and your space with us today. Um, I'm walking away feeling like a lot more knowledgeable about this and motivated too. Thank you for having me. I always love talking about any of this stuff and it's been great getting to meet you and, and know you and your group and your work. And I've listened to your podcast and and it's great. So thank you for inviting me to to be on it today. Oh, thank you for being on it. You have you have elevated the um, message of the podcast, given me a little bit of cred. You know. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Maybe someone will take me seriously someday. I'm just I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you take care, and let's let's meet up again here down the road and uh, touch base and see how th- things are going. That sounds great. Yeah. When I have more exciting data, I would love to come share it with you. Heck yeah. You just let me know. I will make time for you anytime. Will do. Thank you. Thank you, D. Take care. All right. D. McKnight from Invite. And again, make sure you check out the link and the website and some of these documents. It's really eye-opening. You guys take care of yourselves. Thanks for joining us today. And well, you know the routine. Drive fast, take chances, unexpect the expected. And remember, it's all in your head. Much love. This is to my sick kids. Time to flip this shit. Depakote, Adderall, Ritalin, Pixie Sticks. I don't give a fuck what you're riding to the setting sun. Use it as a weapon when it's said and done. It's all too much. Seizure Salad Fuster Clock Epilepticus is produced and hosted by Michael Ball. Original logo and graphic designed by Alba Lopez. The song Seizure Boy, courtesy of Watsky, and used with permission. Find more great music and poetry on his website, georgewatsky.com. Follow our podcast, like our Facebook page, whatever blows your hair back just keep listening and join us again soon for another episode of seizure salad until then remember to unexpect the expected that's all in your head take a minute to of the whip and then i'm gonna mash on gas because i'll be crashing that impasse with that ass syntax skinny motherfucker off a bucket of slim fast